Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. This is the best feeling in the world, you know. We spend so much of our life chasing highs and wanting more and wanting this. Like, this is it. Like, this is it. Everything else is icing on the cake. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have had lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat, and this is the Aftershock Podcast. For Bryony Benjamin, life was going along pretty well. That was until, at the age of 31, when Bryony was diagnosed with advanced stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. Going through cancer treatment was life-changing, so Bryony wrote a book about it. In this episode of the Aftershock podcast, I speak to Bryony Benjamin, author of Life is Tough, But So Are You. There was so much I took out of this book, so I couldn't wait to chat to Bryony and dive deeper into her experience of the aftershock of a cancer diagnosis. Thank you so much for joining me. I couldn't be more excited to speak with you. Your book, Life is Tough, But So Are You, is just an inspiration to me. I've taken so many amazing things out of it, but obviously there was a pretty big life event in your life that led you to writing it and your life took a turn that you weren't expecting. Um, Can you talk me through a bit about your life before it took that turn? Yes. Well, I was working at the time at Mamma Mia Women's Network. I was head of video there. I had an amazing team that I worked with and it was really fun. It was fast paced, but it was fun. Um, I'd been, uh, you know, I had an active social life. I was playing squash and touch football, but I just for about 12 to 18 months just had this really weird, icky kind of just bleh feeling over that just overlaid my life and kind of filtered everything I did. And I remember I'd been dating a guy at the time um, and we'd been dating for about a year. And I remember this quite shocking moment when he said to me, you realize you've been sick the whole time we've been dating? And it was a shock because I think when you're consistently sick for so long, it all just sort of blurs into one and you lose track of time. And yeah, that was a bit of a wake up call. And you know, my mum was quite concerned, my dad was concerned. Uh, But, you know, I kept going back to the doctor over that period and and being told that I was okay. You know, tests weren't leading to anything. Nothing was really showing up um, in my bloods. But I was developing these night sweats that would come quite severely night after night. And that was probably the major symptom or red flag that was sort of missed. I had itchy skin. I had a cough. I had, uh, you know, just this get sick really easily and would, you know, just feel rotten. Uh, but we were sort of treating all of these things as individual. But when you connected them all together, it turns out they were all the symptoms, as I would find out, of Hodgkin's lymphoma. So after about, yeah, 18 months of feeling like this, my parents actually called up my GP and they said, we're really worried. Uh, we actually think she has lymphoma, uh, which, you know, the GP didn't really agree with. She said, look, well, it's very invasive to go and look for that. Uh, you need you need to go do a biopsy. And they said, well, that's what needs to be done because we can't, until we can rule it out, you know, um, we've got no other answers at this point. And, you know, I think the thing that I really shifted as well in my mood, you know, people start to ask, which I think is quite a common thing when people get a cancer diagnosis, you know, are you depressed? Um, are you anxious? You know, and women are so uh, more likely, like the research shows, are way more likely to have their cancer symptoms put down to a mental health diagnosis. 
So a gorgeous girlfriend of mine, for example, was told she had really bad anxiety because she couldn't breathe. Well, actually, she had a punctured lung and um, from, from the tumour. So, you know, I think it's always, I say now to women, you've actually got to be really assertive. You can still be kind, but you've got to be really forthright when it comes to your health, you know, and sort of saying things like, I wish I, if I'd gone back in time, I wish I could have said things like, hey, this is actually really affecting my life. I'm really unwell. I know this isn't normal for me. I need another option or I need another solution. What what else would you suggest? Because I think I just, you know, kept passively going, oh, okay, well, maybe this is just what being an adult feels like. You know, you just feel rotten all the time and tired because you're stressed and busy. Because how old were you at the time? So I was 31. Yeah, you know, and you feel like, you know, hitting the peak of my career and life and, every, you know, but maybe... Maybe this is what growing up feels like. You just feel tired and blur all the time. And so, yeah, long story short, uh, mum insisted I went and saw this haematologist. I went in, she ordered some more tests, got a PET scan, some more blood tests. And she said, come back in a week and we'll look at the results. Uh, And I thought, well, if it was bad news, surely they would call you, right? Um, But turns out, no, they're very busy people. And so I came back, you know, I think it was a fortnight later to get the results. And my beautiful mom insisted on flying down from Queensland to come to this appointment with me. And I was just saying, oh, mom, you're being over the top. Like, I've got to get straight into the office. Soapy Monk's coming in. We've got this big filming day, you know, really important content. Uh, And uh, thank goodness she didn't listen to me, you know, mother's intuition. She was there with me when, uh, yeah, the doctor sat me down and just said, look, I'm really sorry, but the results are back. And it is Hodgkin's lymphoma like your parents were worried about. That just means we just need to clear your next six months immediately and get you started on a course of treatment. And I didn't really know at that point, I didn't know what lymphoma meant. I didn't, you know, honestly, I had some people when they find out, like they've done a lot of research, they've Googled it, they've, you know, they sort of know what's coming. I was so certain there was going to be nothing wrong with me and they were just going to say it's a virus that it was just such a shock. Did your parents speak to you about their suspicion or just the GP? Like, did they come to you and say, well, we're going to tell the GP we think it's lymphoma? I Look, I can't exactly remember, but I think everyone was trying very, uh, you know, I think everyone was trying to just not alarm me, which I think was good, actually. I think, you know, I write about in the book, right, worries like a rocking chair. Uh, it gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. And actually not stressing and worrying about it for those few weeks before I, d- I was diagnosed was good. I think had I been going, oh, my God, I could have cancer. Oh, my God, I could have cancer. That would have been a really stressful time. And uh, even my, my specialist that day when I was diagnosed, you know, she she just gave such good advice on that first day. She just said, "We're not. I don't want you to Google it. We're not even going to talk about treatment just yet. Um, I just want you to focus on the next three steps, getting a heart and lung test done, a blood test done and getting you into the IVF clinic. And I really did use that as that guiding kind of beacon in that first week. I mean, I think about three days later I Googled it, but I, I, you know, it was really good for that first little period where it's just hitting you in waves of shock. Um, But I do remember my first question to her was just, am I going to lose my hair? You know, because then you're like, you have, it's sort of a litmus test of how serious are we talking? Like, what is this? <laughs> and she said, yeah, you will, you know, but it will grow back. And that was, I remember that was like probably the first choke in my throat. And that just that surreal feeling of like, how is this happening to me? Yeah. Well, you're 31, you're focused on your career, you're, you know, entering the prime of your life as well in the most exciting years. And 
comes back to that, I'm sure, control. Like you, mm. you probably felt like you had that control of your life and it's like, why take my hair? Like that is so, you know, that's my identity. Yeah. It's a huge thing for women, I think, as well, you know. It's, um, yeah, it almost seems silly in, in that moment that where your life is, you're finding out that your life is at risk and, you know, you've got this huge health battle ahead of you <laughs> that the hair is such a big thing, but it just is, you know. It's the little things though. I know um, I've spoken about it on the pod before, but my mum spent a lot of time in hospital and um, when she did like a trial visit home after her rehab of learning to walk again, she came home, she blow dried her hair and she felt a million bucks. And she went back to hospital the next day before she was discharged. And the nurses were like, Oh my God, look at you. And it's just, it does seem so trivial for someone on the outside, looking at it being like, you've got cancer. Don't you know, you know, how many other things you've got to worry about? It's like, no, but that's me. That's, that's my identity. And that's what I've got control of. So I, I'm sure there's many people listening who get it. Totally, yeah. I think one the first week, my sister and I, we went and got fabulous blow dryers, and I was like, yeah, you know, this is going to go soon, but I can enjoy it while I've got it for the last two weeks, make make the most of it. And, you know, and then ironically there I was, like I'd had headshots done two weeks before, and I remember just getting them back and picking them apart like nobody's business. Oh, my hair looks terrible. Oh, my weird smile. Oh, my eyebrows are uneven. Oh, my gosh. And then you fast forward a month later and you you think, God, we are so unnecessarily harsh on ourselves. What a gift to have hair. What a gift to have eyebrows. Like, okay, I'm going to be much kinder to myself when they're back. You spoke about the, the shock of the diagnosis. Can you go into a bit more detail about those, the milestones that your oncologist set up and what the initial few weeks looked like for you? Yeah, so, you know, as I said, she just said, we're just going to focus on these next three things. And that was just such a helpful guiding mantra. And it's something I come back to all the time now as well. If I'm feeling overwhelmed, stressed, okay, what's just the next thing I can focus on? What's the next three things I can, you know, get done? Uh, and I think so, yeah, like that that next morning I was in an IVF appointment. I remember going in really hoping to get a woman doctor and I got a male and I was a bit disappointed about that and I went in and he was just the most beautiful man. You know, those beautiful men that you meet that you're just like, oh, if the world was just full of men like this, can you imagine? And he was just gorgeous. And he actually, I remember him just putting his hand on my hand in a really comforting, lovely way and he just said, oh, my darling, like, uh, oh, he probably didn't say darling. That's my my memory. But he just said, let's oh. go with it. I like he that said, one. Yeah, he said, how long have you known? And I said, oh, yeah, a bit less than 24 hours. And he said, oh, my goodness, that's a lot. That's a lot. And he said, well, you know what? We're going to talk today about freezing your eggs. We've got time. And, you know, it will be great comfort to you to go through chemo and go through this experience and know that you've got these beautiful little eggs waiting for you safely on the other side should you need them. And it was, and it was a really comforting thing. And so I think I just felt very blessed to be able to go through and have time to do that. Some people don't have time. Was this on your radar or thinking about this though, um, kids or pregnancy pre-diagnosis? No, I mean, I was in a relationship of about, you know, 18 months at the time, but we were just not at that point. We hadn't even discussed having kids together. So it brought a lot of very big conversations up very, very quickly. Uh, you know, I remember him saying to me, he'd just come from a little eight-year-old girl, um, his previous appointment who was diagnosed with leukemia and she was going to do, you can't do an egg freeze when you're that young, but you can do something called a tissue freeze. And once again, it was just that moment of perspective that this is a big thing I'm going through, but 
my gosh, can you imagine being eight and going through it? You know, I can do this. I can do this. And yeah, like funnily enough, uh, two weeks before, because I'd started this finance club with my girlfriends and we were all talking about egg, egg freezing like a few weeks before. And we we're saying, oh, it's really costly though. And it's like quite an involved process. It takes months. And so that was just this kind of quite funny moment of me, like sort of saying to them, well, I found a really quick and quite cheap way to do it. Um, few catches, but <laughs> uh, yeah, because they, you know, they rush you through. But like they basically said to me, we've got one crack at this. You know, if you're doing IVF normally, you might have a few goes, do it over a few months, takes a few months to get the paperwork all going. For me, they just said, we've got one crack at this. We've got two weeks. Uh, they, they can't even, you know, if you're doing it normally, you would stop and wait till it was the right point in your cycle. With this, they just go, well, we're just going to start injecting the hormones today, see how we go, get what we get. You know, and as he said to me, obviously the most important part of this whole process is that you're alive on the other end of this egg, eggs or no eggs. So I'm always going to make that the number one priority or overall um, well-being and safety. So I felt very safe in that regard, you know, and then that I was fortunate to get some eggs as well. So that was really wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Um, you speak a lot in your book about um, your team, your A-team. Who was in your A-team and why is it so important to have an A-team? Yeah, so I think of about your A-team as just your immediate crew, you know, and it doesn't have to be family, but it can be. In my case, I was very fortunate to have an awesome mum and dad and two gorgeous sisters who were definitely in my A-team and my my little sisters are twins. One lives in Canberra and one lives in lived in London at the time. And she flew back to be with me and, and be through treatment with me, which was, you know, just amazing. Um, my best friend, Nikki, uh, who lives in Cairns, she's a doctor. She flew down the minute she heard and came and was just with me for that first week. Uh, my housemate, Natasha, at the time was an incredible support. My partner at the time, who we're not together anymore, but he was really fantastic at just rallying the crew and rallying support. And interestingly, it was sort of, I, I say to everyone now, I think no matter what someone's going through, even if you don't feel like you know them that well or you're loosely connected, I think there are very few people in the world that don't want to know that they're being thought of and people are sending love and well wishes their way. And in some ways it was the kindness and the thoughtfulness that just came from the most random corners that was as touching and sometimes even more touching. You know, I had a... My, my housemate, Natasha, a girlfriend of hers who I'd never met, sent me a beautiful book and a card. And it just said, I just wanted you to know that people that you don't even know are sending you love and cheering you on. You know, oh God, I get choked up even thinking about it now. Just such a sweet, kind, thoughtful thing to do. And yeah, so I always just say, you know, when I see see or hear about something that's happened in someone's life um, and I don't know them particularly well, I just always try to make the effort to send even just a little text or a, a message just to say it can be simple as saying I'm just so sorry I've heard the news and I'm thinking of you and I'm sending you so much love I completely agree and I've had that come my way so I, I try and pass it on and you speak about it in your book around you've got to feel what you feel and there's just so much pressure out there to stay strong and I hate those words because as someone experiencing grief no one prepares you for it but then a cancer patient no one prepared you to say to you um, you know when you're in school growing up like oh hey one day your might, life might turn to shit here's how to handle it like no one prepares you for no, it other no. than saying hang in there keep your chin up all that shit that is so so not helpful so unhelpful isn't it and that's the thing isn't it it's like someone telling you to be positive 
there's nothing more irritating. You're like, yeah, I am doing everything I can to be positive right now, but being told to be positive, not helpful. And it's the same in, I think, talking to yourself. If you're there going, be positive, be positive. It's like, shut up. I, you know, you don't have to be all the time. Um, you know, and I think there's always a balance, isn't there, between you don't want to be wallowing in it and making it really hard and heavy for yourself, but you also don't want to be pretending everything's fine when it's not because it ultimately just bubbles up at some point. Exactly. It's really hard. Well, and when my mum passed away, one of my friends said that to me, a lot of people are going to tell you to stay strong, but you're allowed to feel what you feel. Um, and I try and say that to people as well. And someone I said it to recently, they had something, and I don't know them that well, but they had something bad going in their life. And they were like, all the messages I've received the last 48 hours, that has been the most helpful because the majority of people are saying, hang in there, be positive, And I just can't do that right now. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes you just need to be told it's okay to not be okay. That is completely, completely fine. But you're right. You can, grief is really powerful and situations like yours are, you know, you can, you can go down a really destructive path or the constructive path. Um, and it's really important to stay on the constructive one. Yeah, absolutely. And really a big fan of the idea around, I don't know if you've heard, like there's this equation around suffering, right? And it's like how much you suffer is an equation of the pain times the resistance you give that thing. So the pain is locked and loaded. You know, losing someone you love is incredibly painful and nothing's going to change that. Getting a cancer diagnosis is really painful. But how much resistance you give to that thing. So that and that can be like that positive resistance of saying like everything's fine, it's great, it's great. That's resistance. And people people doing that to you, that's resistance. And also, you know, making it really, really heavy and really like wallowing and sitting it, that's resistance. So it's like and, and so, so often with life, isn't it? It's always finding the balance. It's finding the balance between where is a good place to sit? How do I allow myself to feel what I'm feeling, not get consumed by it, and just sit in this place of, like, flow and acceptance? Uh, yeah. And I know there would have been so many bumps along the way or hurdles along the way for you where it's like, gee, it's real testing me to be, um, to not be too negative today or too positive. Um, and scanxiety is what I, um, what it can be often known as is, is one of those things. And I know for my mum, she used to go very quiet around her check-ins. She wouldn't tell us she was having them because we'd worry too much, but she would get very quiet. Um, how did you cope with the volume of scans, the blood tests, the results, the waiting yeah, well, you know, coming back to that phrase that I mentioned earlier in the chat, worrying's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. I really did try as much as possible, and it's not always possible, but just to have that approach of I'll worry about it when I'm 100% sure there's something to worry about. And it was, you know, the words of a family friend who had had cancer, and he just said to me, uh, many, many years ago, he'd said, if you worry and it doesn't eventuate, then you're worried for no reason. And you worry and it does eventuate, then you've done double the worrying. And so you, you can't really win in either of those scenarios unless you just don't worry until you have a reason to. Look, easier said than done. And if you're someone that really is suffering from anxiety and all sorts of you know, other experiences, you might need some other coping strategies and mechanisms to deal with that. But that was really... That was really helpful for me. The other thing was I had a beautiful friend 
Emily Sommers, who founded Bravery Co. I don't yes. know if you know it. They make these divine she's, um, she's been on our podcast. I, oh, amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, and she's become a dear friend of mine. I met her through lymphoma. And I was really struggling with it after chemo. Those first few scans were really anxiety-inducing and I was really, really worried about it coming back. And, you know, you have the odd night sweat and suddenly you're thinking, oh, my goodness, it's back. And she just said this thing to me where she said, you know what, my cancer did come back. And it was when I felt better than ever. And she said, point being, if it's going to come back, it's going to come back whether you worry about it or not. So you may as well not worry about it. And that might not work for some people. That might freak them out further. But it just in one instant kind of fixed it for me. I was like, okay, I'm not going to worry then because it's not going to change the outcome here. Yeah. You mentioned earlier around um, we spoke about it, your, your hair and your hair falling out. But in the book you talk about your sister's amazing advice and you've got to tread tread lightly around this because it doesn't work for everyone. But what did your sister say to you that helped you um, change your outlook on losing your hair? Yeah, she had a great phrase around reframing it. And she just said, it was just really wise, my little sister. She's, and she said it very gently, which I think was lovely. She wasn't like, you should do this or you should think this. She was just like, I, I've been thinking about your hair and I'm really sorry that you're going to lose your beautiful hair. And I was wondering if as it starts to fall out, the reframe might be as each strand comes out, this means uh, the medicine is working. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful idea. And it really did help because it was incredibly sad as it started to fall out. But I did. I would say it over and over to myself. The medicine is working. The medicine is working. This means I'm a day closer to good health. So I think no matter what is going on, there is always a way to reframe things in a more helpful mindset. And it's not like we were saying before, forcing the positivity and that toxic positivity, but it's just going, mm, this is interesting. Is there a different way I could think about this to not be wallowed up and consumed by that sadness? And yeah, that, that worked for me. The shock, obviously it's a huge shock to yourself, but I've no doubt it was horrific shock for your parents, your sisters and others around you. Did you find you had to comfort others as well? I really didn't, to be honest. I, I feel like I was very fortunate to have wonderful people around me that just really got it. But I know for a lot of people going through it, that is definitely a thing. I mean, I write about in the book that I think as the one going through it, if you can and you feel you're able to, it is really good just to set some guidelines for people because I could sort of feel this tension when people were around me in those early days. They didn't want to upset me further. They didn't want to say the wrong thing. And so I would just say, um, but when I saw people for the first time, I would just say, hey, um, just so you know, I'm probably going to cry from time to time. If you want to cry, that's fine. If you don't need to cry, that's fine. There's no, you can ask me anything. You know, if you're not comfortable talking about stuff, you might say, you know, in the first few days I called a friend talking about A-teams. I say, you know, your nearest and dearest, a doctor that you really trust. And then someone that's been there, done that and got the T-shirt. And I remembered this beautiful man, Luke, who I'd worked with many years before. And I remember he'd been through testicular cancer. He's the only person I could think of that had been through cancer and the only person my age, I I just really had never known anyone or really spoken with him. And I called him and in that first chat, it was just incredibly therapeutic and helpful. But I said to him straight away, I don't want to know about chemo yet. I don't want to know about treatment. I just want to talk to you Um, because you've got to be really careful. I think some people too, sometimes they want to just jump into giving you all the information 
connection. And so what I now do if I'm supporting someone else that's contacted me or reached out that might have read the book or they've found me on Instagram and they're up, I, I wait till they ask a question specifically or I'll say, well, where are you at right now? What do you want to know? Um, because I know there are a few people that were trying to be helpful for me, but they just overwhelmed me with information that I wasn't ready yet for yet. Like I spoke to a lovely guy that had been through lymphoma, but he started talking about mouth ulcers and side effects, and it just threw me into like a bit of a panic state. Similarly, I talk about in the book, in that A-team, about support groups, um, online support groups, which may be really helpful, but some of them can be pretty dark and scary places as well because, you know, there are people in there that are on the full spectrum of suffering, people that have relapsed, people that have got, the you know, the worst, worst case scenario of your illness or the best or... And, and for me, I, they just weren't spaces that I felt helpful or very safe, but they were helpful um, in the way in that I would say to my sister, can you go in and ask if anyone's had this before? Or can you go in and ask what medicine people took for this? But I didn't want to go into those because I found them overwhelming. So it's just about taking it in at a pace that's good for you. And everyone's body is different. Everyone, um, just because there are side effects to something doesn't mean you're going to have those side effects and vice versa as well. Yeah, totally. And uh, sometimes even just hearing about people that are relapsing, you know, it just puts, you can just put you into a negative headspace going, oh my goodness, what if I relapse? You know, yeah, I'm in remission now, but what if, you know? And so, yeah, for me, I just didn't need to be around that. And that's why I sought out people who I knew got it and like like Emily, like Luke, who, you know, would just do it at my pace. And that was really incredibly helpful. And, and you know, and, and I think really what in many ways led to the book, because when I was first asked to write it, I thought, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a cancer expert. I'm not a doctor. But when I thought about the advice that had most helped me, it was from people that had been there and done that. And so I thought, well... I would love to put all the gold that I learned from all these amazing people all into the one place. Like it really was the book that I wish I'd had at the beginning that would have stepped me through it, you know? So. Absolutely. I, I've said it multiple times to you now, but it, it has been gold for me. And one part that I love, and if anyone asks me, or well, what did you get out of it? It's the part where you talk about looking after yourself and preparing yourself mentally and physically when the sun is shining. So not waiting for a disaster to happen to start looking after yourself. And that's mentally as much as physically. And I was just like, that is key. Cause I think what people, people associate cancer with the physical, obviously, cause it's a physical disease, but my God, does it take a mental toll on you and your loved ones? And I think the, the more, I don't want to speak for my mum, but um, I know she comes from a generation where mental health was not a focus. Um, so totally. that is my key takeout from your book. It's the importance of looking after yourself when things are going well. It's much easier to do that than when life turns to shit, basically. Absolutely. You know, and I think a big part of that as well is being really thoughtful about the company that you keep, you know, and the friendships that you have, because when it all goes pear-shaped, which for everyone at some point, I hate to say it, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but something is going to happen to all of us. You know, every single one of us is going to, are going to lose someone that we love at some point in time. That's just life. And so having really wonderful, kind, good people in your life and really letting go of the other people is so important. And that's part of, you know, I think making hay while the sun shines and, and cultivating a good life and a good community around you. 
um, so that you do have that support, you know, if and when you need it. I think you've answered what I was going to ask ne- next, and that was around you pre-diagnosis. You led such a fast-paced life and very focused on your career, and cancer forces you to slow down because you, um, like your oncologist said, it's just focusing on the next six months and you know putting all of that first. Um, what did you start to see once you slowed down? Yeah, there was definitely a. I mean, so many things, but you do have time just to slow down and appreciate and notice the little things in life. And I think I'd always been okay at that, but I'm really good at it now. Um, And I'm really fortunate to be with a partner who is very much the same. He's someone that's super grateful and says it in the moment like I do, you know, rather than waiting the next week and going, oh, wasn't that a lovely day we had last week? We, You know, we're both the sort of people that in the moment will go, how good is this day? How beautiful is this? How lucky are we to live here? You know, and I think that's a wonderful thing. It's something that um, I love from the Resilience Project as well, another gorgeous book by Hugh Van Sacklenberg, you know, and he says um, about one of his students who who would um, point and just say, this, this, like in the moment, you know. And so there's being, being grateful, but being grateful right then and there. Um, yeah, noticing the little things like, you know, um, and just, being more mindful and taking in little details of life. Like I think something specifically about nature that I just, you know, I find myself more often just in a complete state of awe taking in details of nature, be it something big and grand like a sunset or a a landscape right down to a tiny little flower or just sitting down and watching the ants crawling along the ground Um, And, you know, there's like these whole universes in these tiny little things that so often we're in this sort of rush, we just don't even stop and pay attention to. So, yeah, paying attention to those little moments, um, finding more times just to, to be kind and appreciate the kindness that does exist and is around. And then for me, I think it was about just being really thoughtful about how I wanted to spend my time on earth and, and what doing, you know, and um, I, I've always been really, really passionate about the environment and climate change. I literally changed degrees at uni around climate. Um, I studied a bunch of subjects in my commerce degree around carbon trading, and that's when I was really woken, awoken to the climate crisis and that this was going to have to happen in our lifetime, this huge transformation of the economy. It's something I had to really step away from when I was unwell because I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth to think about it. But a few years later, and as I got more well, I could sort of re-engage with that. And and I think that's a, a really big thing for change makers and people doing important good work in the world is that I know so many campaigners, amazing humans that just burn themselves out. And my message on that now is like, you're no good to your community, you're no good to your family, you are no good to the planet when you're burnt out and exhausted. So that whole idea of actually taking care of yourself, looking after your body, looking after your mind, um, so critical. And I had a, another thought that I was really keen to share with you, Suzanne, around, you know, we, we've discussed mental health, we've discussed physical health, but something that's really become really pivotal to my recovery is actually mind and body connection. And so I think 
you know, in Western medicine, we do. We just treat them as completely separate things. We go see a psychologist for our mind. We go see a PT for our body or whatever. And, yeah, a few months ago, I actually did a course called The Lightning Process, which is all about mind and body connection. And it's been the single most transformative, healing, incredible thing that I've done. Like, it sounds the lightning, lightning process. It sounds completely insane, but in three days, it healed my chronic fatigue that I've been dealing with for five years. And I'd been recommended it. A number of people had told me that. And I was like, this sounds too good to be true. But I'm at the point where I'm going to try anything. <laughs> like, sign me up. And it did. Like, by the first day, huge shift. By the end of the third day. And it was at a point where the idea of doing three days in a row was just so overwhelming. It was like, how am I even going to get through three days? And and people, other people had told me that as well. They were like, you won't even believe you can get through three days at the moment, but trust me. And, um, yeah, so I did it with this amazing woman in Sydney called Liz Allen. There's only three lightning practitioners in the country. In the UK, there's hundreds. That's where it began. And it's all about rewiring your neural pathways and breaking down different beliefs that you might be carrying on to that are actually making you sick. So um, it's about changing your thoughts and your your um, mental patterns that you might have gotten into to change your physiology. And and it's just had this most extraordinary impact on my life. So that'll be in the next book, <laughs> talking about mind-body connection, because it is, it's just, it, it's a game changer. And I think that in time, we see health move in that direction more, you know? Oh, absolutely. I know something you've said before is like remembering your body wants to heal as well. Um, and I think that's just such a good thing to have on your mind I had a yoga instructor years ago she was amazing she uh, her husband's a urologist so western medicine and um she was a yoga instructor so kind of mental and physical coming together and she said that disease is dis-ease when your body's not at ease and that just like I've written that was so long ago but I just I think about it's that so, so often because it's so true I mean I just think everyone should do the lightning process at some point I promise I'm not getting a commission on this like because I'm just I'm just fanatical about it now but it was incredibly helpful to have someone really interrogating different beliefs that you're holding on to because the thing about beliefs is you don't even know you're holding on to them which she said so a lot of we find a lot of people do the lightning process and they do really well they go home do something completely different that they haven't done in years like climb a mountain or do a run like I did I started running on day one and then I ran for 50 days straight and I hadn't like so my afternoon nap was replaced with a run like crazy and she said but then we find they get home into the room that they've been really sick and unwell in and their feet just fall out from underneath them and I just burst into tears and she said oh what what, what's that brought up for you and she also said oh tears we love tears which was such a lovely thing rather than oh you know why are you crying she said oh we love tears and I said oh every single time I go home to see my parents I get really sick every time my neck flares up I get heavy fatigue I get brain fog I feel nauseous and now you've just made me realize that's like a pattern because that's where I was having chemo and that's where I went home to be sick. So I go home and I'm doing sick again. And so, you know, that's why I think it's incredibly powerful to find, be at the lightning process or something like that where someone can actually hold a mirror up to you and unpick those beliefs because I didn't even know I was holding on to those. It was just an extraordinary um, thing. And so when I go home for Christmas this year, I'm going to be really conscious about it and, you know, change up something in my room. And she, and she said, it's literally as simple as maybe enter the house a different way, have a chat with your family about what different things you can do, or maybe it's just changing the doing a couple simple things that 
that will say to your brain, this is good, you're safe here, it's all okay. Learnings like that have just been amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. You obviously went through treatment, um, you had your ups, you had your downs. What was the moment like when you received your first bit of good news um, after treatment at the hospital? Yeah, it was just amazing. You know, interestingly, same as being told I had lymphoma and not really understanding. <laughs> I remember the doctor saying to me, you're in remission. And I was like, cool, what's that? You know, what, is, what does actually that mean? I, you know, I had no cancer literacy. I'd not been in cancer world for long. She said, oh, it means we can't see the cancer in your body. And so I, I was really fortunate to get that news early in. And I remember my mum, dad and my sister and I, we went outside into the sunshine outside the hospital and we all hugged and we all just burst into tears. It was the first time I'd seen my mum or my dad cry. They'd held it together so beautifully for me. It'd been so strong. And it was just an amazing, amazing feeling. And I remember thinking, this is the best feeling in the world, you know. We spend so much of our life chasing highs and wanting more and wanting this, like, this this is it like this is it everything else is icing on the cake you know to be here to be well to know you're gonna you've got more time like nothing matters more than that and you've spoken about it before but it's something i live by it's jomo the joy of missing out and um i I love that saying and i apply it most days it yeah it's fantastic isn't it and that was my friend jenna who shared that with me the joy of missing out because you can, and particularly when you're in a recovery mode, you, you can waste a lot of energy, you know, oh, I'm missing this, I'm missing that. And Jomo is all about just reveling in the guilt-free, you know, um, joy of, oh, yeah, I'm not there and that's cool. I'm actually home and I'm in bed with my dog and I'm enjoying myself having a cup of tea or, you know, relishing the moment that you're in. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Oh, I love it. Um, Bryony, your book taught me so much. I couldn't be more grateful that um, I read it. I'm not sure how I got my hands on it, but um, I, I've learned so much from it and I couldn't recommend it to more people, but that's a lot. So thank you so much for sharing your story with me and us. Um, I know you've helped so many people, so thank you. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. Well, it's been, yeah, it's been really lovely to chat and connect. And thank you for your beautiful words about the book. It's been certainly the most wonderful thing to have put out into the world, you know, and to connect with so many beautiful people that have been through such challenging things that for them to say, yeah, this has really helped. There's been sort of no better feeling than that. Thank you so much to Bryony for joining us on the Aftershock podcast. Your book had a really positive impact on my life and I hope by sharing your story with us, it'll have the same impact on someone else's. Until next time, I'm Susie Neat, and this has been the Aftershock Podcast.